rare disease community is inspirational, brave, and empowering. Welcome to Insightful Moments, My Vibe, from PTC Therapeutics. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to PTC's Insightful Moments, My Vibe where we're elevating the voices of people within the rare disease community to inspire, inform, and comfort. My name is Paula Orendash, and I'm the Patient Engagement Liaison at PTC Therapeutics. Recently, we attended the National PKU Alliance Challenge the Summit 2022 conference in Vancouver where we spoke to many individuals affected by PKU. Today, we give them a platform to share their stories. PKU affects the body's ability to metabolize proteins. It requires a strict monitoring of diet, but has many other challenges and nuances for those diagnosed with PKU and their loved ones. Next, we talk to Sam, who was diagnosed with PKU at two weeks old. She recalls how learning about the symptoms of PKU as a child helped her better understand herself and her diagnosis. Sam now advocates about the importance of diagnosis and symptom education for children with PKU, including starting a blog and an Instagram page to document her journey, where she hopes to spread awareness and support for others. Well, first of all, thank you so much for being here for our Insightful Moments My Vibe. Would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, uh, my name is Sam, born and raised in Canada. Uh, Just moved to Washington State last year. Um, I have classic PKU. I was diagnosed when I was two weeks old. So if you were to explain to someone the PKU, how do you explain it? Yeah, wow. That's a great question. It depends who I'm talking to. Um, If I'm just in a quick conversation, like a waiter comes to the table, I'll just say that it's a preference because if I say that it's an allergy, then I have to, they bring the chef out, I talk to the chef, and it's a whole thing that doesn't even apply to me. If it's someone that's going to be, that I'm going to be around, then I'll go into detail. I'll say, I was born with a metabolic condition. Um, I'm missing an enzyme that breaks down protein, specifically phenylalanine. And if phenylalanine builds up in your bloodstream, it's poisonous to your brain, you could get brain damage. So that's why it's really important when you're younger, when your brain is developing to have such a strict diet, because that's when your brain is, is developing. And now it's still important because when I have high blood levels, I have bad memory, my hands get shaky. I have brain fog. Um, my mood is all over the place. Walk me through adolescence to today, what your conversations about PKU sounded like and how you were like, you know, talk to your friends and and just people at school, what is, what are those conversations sounded like? Yeah. So when I was growing up, um, my dietitian used to say that when I'm younger, my life is going to be 90% PKU and 10% regular life. 
And when I get older, it'll be 90% regular life and 10% PKU. And that's totally true. I was always a small eater growing up. So food was never like the focus of like anything I looked forward to. At birthday parties, I'd be like, we have to stop playing and like eat. That's so annoying. (laughs) Like I'd rather just play. So I was never really focused on that. I was never tempted to cheat at my diet. I was never tempted to swap lunches at school. And my friends were always very supportive and understanding. And even if they didn't fully understand like the whole science behind it or whatever, they knew like I had no foods and yes foods and maybe sometimes foods. And they were always really supportive in that. Um, I didn't have a lot of PKU community around me. PKU research and science and Connection has grown immensely over the last 25, 30 years. When I was younger, I didn't have, I didn't have conferences like this really, like a few of them, but, but nothing on this caliber. And so as I've grown up, it's been easier for people to understand because more people have allergies, more people have dietary needs. There's more access to dairy-free different milk options, different vegetarian, vegan options than there was like 20 years ago. So I would say it's actually gotten a lot easier to talk to people about it now that more people are being exposed to more things. When you see the a younger person, you mm-hmm. know, with PKU, what are some of the words of wisdom that you share with them? Yeah, that's actually a big reason why I got into PKU advocacy was because I, I never had someone to talk to growing up. And I used to actually visit new parents in the hospital when they would have babies with PKU because, you know, when you get that news for the first time, I I mean, I can't imagine. It's probably very scary. You know, you're going into the unknown. And so I loved being a light, being an example, being like, hey, look, I don't have 15 fingers and three heads. Like, I'm fine and I'm doing great and your child's going to do as well. What I would say to a young child with PKU is just be diligent, be disciplined, find the joy. There's nothing you can't do. There's no ceiling on your life. Everybody has something that they're dealing with. So just don't give up. Coming to um, a conference and seeing, you know, there's a national organization supporting PKU and then seeing all the companies and the different research that's going on. Tell me, how does that feel? It's overwhelming in a good way, (laughs) especially, um, I'm new to America, so I just got here. And when we're talking about all the insurance stuff, that's something that we don't have. And so now that I'm in it and I'm dealing with it, that's something that relates to my life that wouldn't have before. Makes me more excited to be an advocate. Um, Makes me want to tell more people about how they can get involved, where they can donate, um, just to have people be open with their conversations. It's so cool to see like how many flavors of formula there is. Like when I was younger, it was like slop is your flavor. (laughs) And now there's like orange and berry and chocolate and vanilla and all these things. And it's just so awesome to witness the younger generation having so many more options so that they can grow up in a more normal and accessible life. And then what is the community's and your feelings about clinical trials and what's happening in research? I'm always open to new clinical trials. I'm actually in one right now 
um, with my hospital. And it's kind of like when they were talking about genetic testing and gaining more patient data. So every time I go into the hospital, they're going to do like DEXA scans and all these different tests that will add to that patient data database. So I'm all for it. I love it. <laughs> what is your hope for for those that generation? Yeah, I'm just so thankful for how we've progressed over. I mean, it's way greater than I could ever imagine of just where we are now. And they were asking questions in the seminar of like, where are we going to be to five to seven years? And it's like, we have no idea because we are growing like at speeds that we've never hit in the last few years. And yeah, I'm just excited to to see the different accessibility that people will have. I know that there's a lot of people in third world countries that are having a lot of issues with accessibility. I would love to have medical foods available worldwide. The Medical Nutrition Equity Act obviously would be a huge thing to see passed, to see that bill passed because insurance is is such a big deal and just getting people to understand the severity of and the necessity of those medical foods and medical formula. And they were talking about how um, the baby formula shortage that we've had has really awoken the importance to that and and that it's not just babies but it's people my age too that need it as well so i think we're making great progress (laughs) so tell me about you today yeah i got married last year i work at a counseling clinic um i'm really passionate about mental health Uh, i want to go into getting my master's in grief and trauma counseling um i think that's a huge topic that's not really talked about especially in the rare disease world as well. I love that they did a seminar on that the first day. That was really cool. I've heard um, others talk about the session on mental health and the the praise that that's been addressed or being spoken out loud. Can we talk a little bit about the impression from the PKU community and mental health and the support? Yeah, I can't stress enough how important mental health care is. That's another thing that isn't always covered by insurance as well because it's not really recognized as a need in a lot of people, but especially people who have rare diseases, who are in and out of hospitals. Um, It can be a very lonely thing to have a rare disease because it's rare. And I mean, PKU is like one in 15,000 people. And so it can feel very lonely. Um, Your high levels can spike anxiety, depression, um, a whole bunch of different mental health cases. And that's why I love this community is because we're able to connect and and say things like, oh, I thought I was the only one that felt that way. But it's so nice to feel that we, we're all in the same boat. But when you are alone and you are going through things, you're trying new medications that might have different side effects, having support for those side effects of the medication and just the rare disease that you're trying to journey through, mental health accessibility would be amazing. So it's great that they're taking the opportunity here to address it. What are some of the things people should do once they leave this conference? I would see this conference not just as like a pinnacle of life, but as kind of like a training room so that we're able to just get inspired by what we hear, not have this be the climax, but the rising action to what we're going to do when we get home when it comes to advocacy and community and all those things. Great. So what are some of the things that are, are on your list so far? 
I have a blog called theunseendisease.com. Sometimes it falls to the bottom of my priority list, but I'm definitely more inspired to keep that going. Um, I have a bunch of different spotlights that I do with different kinds of people. So I've done a maternal PKU spotlight where I've interviewed different people about maternal PKU. I've had a spotlight about people traveling with PKU. I've had a guest writer where my dad comes on and he shares what it was like raising me with PKU. And there's just meeting all these people here that it's so many more stories out there. And so I really want to have that presence online. And on my Instagram, I have a an advocacy page um, of just sharing different people's stories and letting other people know that they're not alone. Thank you so, so much for sharing and for enlightening us, the commu- you know, the community who does so want to be a support for you. So thank you for everything. Thank you so much. next guest is also named Sam. Holding a doctorate in physical therapy makes Sam the perfect person to tell us about the Medical Nutrition Equality Act, how PKU was traditionally defined in contrast to its modern understanding, and how she learned to get creative with her meal plan. First of all, thank you so much for being a part of our PTC Insightful Moments, My Vibe. We would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us about you. So I'm Sam Peterson. I'm a 33-year-old person with PKU. I have a doctorate in physical therapy. I studied in Australia. I've done a lot, even though I have PKU. I try not to let it limit me. Um, And I also have an older brother with PKU as well. So tell us growing up with PKU, how, you know, I talked a little bit about understanding how you verbalize what PKU is. Mm -hmm. So what does that sound like when you're younger, when you're talking to your friends, to how you talk to people and what you describe PKU as now? Mm -hmm. So when I was very young, I really liked that I could say phenylketonuria when I was five years old. And so I liked confusing kids with that. But I basically just explained to kids that I was just really limited with like what I could eat, and I could just tell them I eat fruits and vegetables, and that's all I eat, and they were usually okay with that. Um, as I got older, I got a little more in-depth with the science, <laughs> so that was always interesting. And then the way I deal with it now is I just kind of explain to people I'm a, I'm a medical vegan, <laughs> and that kind of just makes it simpler, and they don't have too many questions, but it does open the conversation if they're curious about it because the medical part of it is they're like, oh, what does that mean? And if they're interested in it, then I will tell them a lot more about it. So what does that mean? So I just tell them that I have a metabolic disorder where I can't metabolize protein. And when they hear that, they're like, how is that possible? How do you live without protein? And so I just kind of explain it to them that I have an enzyme in my body that doesn't convert it the way it's supposed to go and help my brain. And they're they're just kind of like, oh, that's very interesting. But it is hard for people to understand if they haven't heard a lot of that type of talk and scientific. And do, do you and your brother take two different approaches to communicating about PKU? Or My brother actually doesn't like talking about it at all. And I think that might be more of a male thing because a lot of his friends are like heavy meat eaters and things like that, especially at barbecues. 
And so they would give him a lot of flack about, you know, eating salad and just eating vegetables. And they're just kind of like, what guy just does that? And so he had some struggles with that and didn't like to go to social events for that reason. But um, it wasn't usually difficult for me. Do you sense that there is a part of the PKU community that kind of isolates as opposed, like very similar to what your brother did? Yeah, definitely. Because especially growing up, most social events are around food. I mean, birthday parties, any kind of outings, field trips. I mean, almost anything you do with friends, there's going to be food involved. And it can be sharing food or it can just be packing food. I mean, you can see kids at school at lunch. I mean, they're trading foods. Even in COVID, they're not supposed to, but they're trading foods. And anybody with PKU can't do that. And then they feel left out or they feel different and they just don't want to. So yeah, growing up, looking that different and feeling that different is really, really hard. We're meeting all different families, you know, living with PKU. How would you advise the younger kids here with PKU as far as dealing with like the social aspect of of living with PKU? I would really encourage them to get involved in their diet young, preparing, not necessarily preparing their own foods, but being involved in it. So when they do get in their own, those social situations, they kind of know what to do, what kind of options they have, what they can kind of MacGyver with their foods without looking weird. That way they have more control over what they're doing and they feel confident in it without feeling like they're going to damage themselves. What led you to your educational path, your academic? Initially, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I love animals. And then I decided I could never put one down. (laughs) I love them too much. So I kind of switched to people medical. And um, I started in like sports therapy because I did a lot of sports growing up. And then so I decided to go to physical therapy, PT grad school. And um, as I got to know different areas of physical therapy, I kind of just fell in love with it and kept going with that. So you went all the way to Australia? I did, yes. So tell me about that journey. Um, That was actually very interesting because when I got there, I decided to go there because they had amazing physical therapy research coming out of Australia and New Zealand. But when I got there, I found out that they don't support PKU after the age of 18. So that was very interesting. And I couldn't get any formula over there. So that was interesting, too. I had to ship all of my formula from the States. And I basically did that in giant suitcases and just paid an extra fee for another bag. And what are you doing today? Right now, actually, I'm working in special ed um, just because of life instances kind of changed my path. I do plan on going back to physical therapy at some point. I just have to pass my licensing exam. Uh, But right now I'm in special education and I love working with students with autism and cerebral palsy and developmental delay. It's very interesting to work with those students. And very challenging. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about what PKU is and wanting to know your, your thoughts about coming to a conference like this and seeing all the different companies now and and the research that's going on and all the products. Well, one thing that I I really love is seeing all these different booths. I've never seen so many booths. So it's really cool to see all these like 
therapeutic places and pharma companies really trying to get involved. Um, the blood fee monitoring systems are a huge, huge step. And like we started talking about those 10 years ago, we didn't even think that was going to happen in our lifetime. So it's really cool just to see what they're developing in the cr clinical trials and the research. So what does that mean to do your blood level? So do your blood level is, I mean, you take a pinprick of your blood, you put it on a piece of paper and you send it into a lab and they do all this analysis for it. What is a good result, bad result? So a good result is anywhere from like, and it can kind of vary between clinics on their opinions, anywhere from like two to six is usually a very good result. Above 10 is like damaging. So you want to keep it at a low level. And what does one have to do to keep it at a low level? That's where you have to stay on like really low protein foods, fruits and vegetables. You can buy low to protein foods, bread products, pasta products. But those also get very expensive and very difficult to get in some states. So it can be a challenge depending on where you are. So talk to me a little bit about your memory of, of the formulas. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so the very first formula was the only formula, which was low phenylac. And it was awful. Me and my brother both had to be on it for a long time. And it was, we basically raced to drink it because it was the only way we could get it down. And it had like a foam on top that was just awful. And oh my gosh, it was, there were a few times we couldn't get it down, but we had to keep trying anyway. And eventually they got a little bit better in the aspect that we could get it down. But it was really funny because they're like, oh, this is a vanilla flavor. And we're like, where's the vanilla? So it was very interesting when they did start developing them because we were just kind of like, this isn't any better. <laughs> But now there are so many companies working on them that they have they have gone really far in formula development. So, and even just the ingredients that they're using are so much healthier. It's a lot better. So, how important is formula to a PKU diet? So, the formula is really important because by not eating high protein foods, we're missing a lot of amino acids and other proteins that we do need to develop. And so the formula helps supplement all of those that we're not getting. So we can still grow and develop properly. And it's also giving us specifically tyrosine, which is an amino acid that we can't convert in our body, but is still necessary for development. So it has all these other benefits that we need and can't get through the food that we eat. So then your diet, in addition to that, just requires low protein. Mm -hmm. And so how, how, how do you become creative? Give me some examples of creative plates. Well, you just get really creative on making different vegetable dishes. I mean, even with like tacos, um, you make all, you get really good at putting all these random like fillings in and we're like, you get really good at making, we call it refried beans, but all it is is like zucchini and we put in mushrooms and we put in broccoli, we put in chayote, and then we just put like tomato juice on it and mix it all up. And then like, that's a taco filling. So it's like, you just come up with creative stuff and you're like, oh, it's good. That works. So sometimes you just experiment and sometimes it's awful, but sometimes it's great. And especially if you have kids, you're just like, I'm going to try it. So. It's always interesting. 
is there a central place where like someone can find recipes? One of the best places to look is Cook for Love, and that one's online, and they have a variety of different recipes. And they they go from like simple to complex, so it's like depending on your palate or your kid's palate, you can make it simpler or like better with herbs and spices and things like that. Seeing that society is really very accepting now of, you know, vegan diets or vegetarian diets. Do you see a difference in being able to really, you know, be part of that kind of um, diet philosophies as opposed to when you were younger and nobody knew what a vegetarian was or a vegan? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, even just coming to like eating out now, I mean, there's like vegetarian sections and menus or like this is like these are all vegetable options or like vegan options, gluten-free options, and like everything. Things are labeled now and you're like, oh, I might be able to have this. And so growing up, I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't eat anything because nothing was listed. Nothing was explained. We didn't know what was in anything. All we could ever do was go get like a small McDonald's fries. That was all we got when we were little. That was our treat. So, I mean, now we can go to like an Asian restaurant and order a vegetable dish and not feel like worried about it. So, yeah, things have developed a lot more and we have a lot more choices. What are you hoping for looking forward? What are you hoping for for the PKU community? What I would really like to see is more support with insurance, formula and insurance, because I know in particular for me, that's been a nightmare. And then more support with like mental health and PKU, because we're seeing some trends with that. And then just with, at least especially in adulthood, when we have to deal with it on our own, I don't think we've ever been educated on how to do that. So kind of if they had a program with that or something, that would that'd be incredible and very beneficial for a lot of PKU people, especially kids that are growing up with it. If they could start young and kind of figure out what it means to have to manage it, that'd be really good for a lot of people. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of the trends that are being seen? So I haven't seen all of them. I just kind of would have been hearing from a lot of researchers. What we're seeing a little bit more is with PKU patients, at least as they're aging, not always when they're young, as they're aging, we're seeing a little more diagnoses of like ADD and ADHD. And it's not always hyperactive. Sometimes it's like a depressive ADD. So it's like, even though we're not diagnosed initially, we're seeing those trends later. And since we haven't had a lot of adult PKU people, like, but they're aging now, we can start getting that data. And then hopefully we can maybe implement something that can support that. So now that I've seen that data and I've experienced some depression, I'm like, this could be quite helpful. So what would be some solutions and, and help for the community? Well, I know one thing that have started is like that peer mentoring program. And I think that's a really wonderful start. I think like another aspect is like moving into the clinics and really reaching out to the families and making support systems like within the clinics too, because not every clinic does that. So is there a standard of care for PKU? Not everywhere. No. Like I know the University of Washington clinic is very good and they've always been known, well known for caring for PKU patients, but other states like almost completely ignore them and provide no care. So they like there are the people who have never met another PKU person and they're in their 20s. Like 
people need to be connected to each other. So who would be part of the the medical team for uh, someone with PKU? So you have a nutritionist and then you have a specialist doctor, basically, who's also a pediatrician because you can only have basically a specialist in PKU is for pediatrics, even though you have to be treated for life, which is one of the reasons it's so difficult with insurance companies because you have a pediatric doctor as an adult. And they're like, that's not okay. <laughs> it's like, but only pediatric doctors specialize in this because it starts as chat. So that's where a lot of the issues come in. But then you also have to like contact your GP, keep them informed. And then if you have any comorbidities, you have to keep them informed. So it can be just your clinic team, but it can also expand to more areas of the medical field. So I think that there's a food or medical equality act. Mm -hmm. Can you, do you know anything more about that, that you can? Yeah. The medical nutrition equity act is essentially to allow people like us who require medical nutrition to survive, um, to get our formula and our medical food for free, basically covered by insurance. Cause it's basically prescription. We need it to live. Um, cause right now we have to pay a lot of money to get it. A lot of people can't afford it. That's why a lot of people don't get formula or food. I know for me, I can get formula if I fight for it for months. I can't get any food covered. I usually have to save up for about eight months and then I can buy like a case of pasta and that's it. So like, it's very expensive. And like I said, a lot of people can't afford it at all. So the main reason for that act is to make that free nationwide. Is that initiative initially started by the PKU community or is the, how is the PKU community moving it forward? Yeah. So that was initiated by National PKU Alliance. And we started it, I believe they said about four years ago. And it gets voted on like every two years. And we didn't make it the last two years, but we're just going to keep pushing it because it's just so necessary for everybody. So they're going to keep doing it. What is the registry? From my understanding is they're trying to get as many PKU patients as they can to fill out this registry. And it has, it's going to have a lot of their information and their, their medical history, especially PKU history. And all this data goes into their, into their system and they get to um, basically review it and they get all sorts of different data about PKU. They can compare it between patients, demographics, they compare education, they compare all these different things and they can see trends. And that's also where they started seeing trends between um, the diagnosis with ADD and ADHD. So that was also where it was very interesting. They get all sorts of data and then they can also share it with research companies too to see where we where the biggest needs are. So they're they're doing a lot more too, but that's that's just kind of like the start of it. Someone from the community who has not participated in the registry, where would they find the registry to participate? Oh, well, they could go to National PKU Alliance online. They could go to PKU Northwest. It's on our Facebook pages as well. I mean, you go to like PKU Northwest anywhere and I bet you can find it. So looking forward, what are your hopes and, and dreams for the PKU community? Um, well, I'm hoping it just gets 
bigger. And we just kind of keep moving around the country and connecting people. And I know we've had people from other countries visit too. So that'd be cool if we could connect other countries, especially as COVID calms down a little. So, cause I know I've met a few people in other countries and, but I've lost touch with them. So it'd be cool to connect again. And is there anything you would like to say that I maybe didn't ask about? Maybe the only other thing is we've developed a couple like major camps that we do now. Um, we do a big family camp in Oregon. And my dad actually started that about 20 years ago when I was about 14. It's gotten huge. And we have over usually 350 guests, usually nine different countries, lot, most of the states. Like it's, it's gotten huge and it's incredible. And it's at the Young Life Ranch. And we have like water slides. We have recreational areas. We do an Olympics with everybody. We do a carnival. Like it feels like a vacation, not even a camp. It's just incredible. So making events like that, that just bring people together and are fun. Those are really important. And we just want to get the word out so people can enjoy it and celebrate PKU for a change. You've been so helpful in, in providing insight, um, not only to, into PKU, but to the community. So I'm so thankful that you did that and that you are sharing all this with us. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Insightful Moments, My Vibe and for supporting voices within the rare disease community. Thank you as well to everyone who shared their story on today's episode. Please visit our website at www.ptcinsightfulmoments.com for more stories and resources. If any of the stories resonated with you today, Please let us know by leaving a review wherever you are listening or by sharing this show with a friend. I'm Paula Orandash, and this has been Insightful Moments, My Vibe from PTC Therapeutics.